John 1.19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. The Pevensey children, if you're familiar with them, had stumbled into uh, something of a magical land called Narnia through a wardrobe. And the good creatures of this magical land had been waiting for a really long time for their king, the lion called Aslan, to return. They were expecting him. But Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy Pevensey had never heard the name Aslan before. They didn't share in the expectations of the people. And if they had just met a talking lion in the forest, I don't think they would have known what to do with him. But that's not how the story was written. They met a talking beaver instead, a herald, if you will, a messenger, a messenger of the king to say something about that expectation. Here's here's what happened. Let me just read an excerpt. The beaver's voice sank into silence, and it gave one or two very mysterious nods, then signaling to the children to stand as close around it as they possibly could so that their faces were actually tickled by its whiskers. It added in a low whisper, they say Aslan is on the move perhaps has already landed. And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. Perhaps it's happened to you in a dream that someone says something you don't understand, but in the dream it feels as if it had some enormous meaning, either a terrifying one 
which turns the whole thing into a nightmare, or a lovely meaning too lovely to put into words, which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it all your life and are always wishing you could get into that dream again. It was like that now. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in its inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her, and Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it's the beginning of holidays or the beginning of summer. (laughs) I love that passage. As we move through John's gospel, it's a bit like stepping into this Narnia kind of a place. It's a far-off, ancient world, and it's brimming with expectation for a king. Expectation that you and I don't just naturally walk around thinking about as 21st century Americans. But before we meet this king, not knowing what to do with him, the Gospel of John introduces us to a guy kind of dressed like a beaver uh, named John, John the Baptizer. (laughs) You know, he's got a hairy cloak. And Anyway, Uh, John the Baptizer. And before, you'll note, like the prologue to John's gospel so far has been huge grand ideas and truths taught about the person of Jesus, the word, who is eternal and is with God and is God, but we haven't met the man yet. So this is a momentous occasion. (laughs) That's right. Thank you, Evie. So this uh, baptizer is going to tell us what the king is like and Help us understand the expectations, the expecting, the waiting. And perhaps as we read the words, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, something in you um, tingled a little bit, maybe. And maybe it's a little bit of dread. Maybe it's a little bit of that summer holiday feel. I'm not sure, but I do know that when we proclaim Christ something happens. So this is, I enter into this, and we all should, with expectation that Christ really truly is on the move, and the Word of God is powerful, and he's committed to stirring us up. Once the 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon, who was famous for his voice, we've never heard it, it was never recorded, um, his son did a recording, and it was a very weird voice. Uh, but So I hope it was nothing like that. That's not my point. I just thought it was interesting. Um, Charles Spurgeon, sorry, my microphone's doing weird things. Uh, he was once guest preaching at a, a big cathedral somewhere in Europe that he'd never preached in before. And of course, this is pre-microphone, so he's testing the acoustics. And he walks in the day before service to an empty building, he thought. And with all of his, you know, bluster test the acoustics by saying, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And far up, as legend has it, on the rafters was a workman working on the building who dropped his tools and became a Christian in that moment. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but I believe it. It could be true because that's how God works when we proclaim Christ. We say, look, behold. And when we look with the eyes of faith, he heals, he moves. So maybe that proclamation today will wake something up in you. Do not ignore it. Do not dismiss it. Now we're going to just zoom in on that sentence today. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
There's so much more in this passage we read, and we're going to just come back to it again next week and talk about all kinds of other things like baptizing with the Holy Spirit. This week, we're just going to focus on the core of the testimony. Who is this lamb? Uh, There'll just be three points looking at each part of the sentence. The lamb provided by God who takes away the sin of the world. Before we jump into that, I just want to give a little context to the chunk that we just read. Now, what's happened is that John the baptizer has come dressed strangely and acting strangely and talking powerfully and doing something unique, baptizing people. Now, baptism was a concept they were used to, but not the way he was doing it. We'll get into that next week. But his ministry was so notable and remarkable that the leaders of the Jewish people in Jerusalem heard about it and sent a delegation. And these delegates came to John with three questions based on what they were expecting from Scripture. And the questions were, one, are you the Christ? Now, they asked that because so many people had claimed that they were and failed to meet those expectations. John, if he had said, yes, I am a Christ, would have been not the first, not the second, but probably the hundredth in the last hundred years before Jesus was born to claim to be the Messiah. So that was a reasonable question for them to assume that he was, you know, offering himself up as a, as a Messiah figure. Side note, Christ is the Greek word for Messiah in Hebrew, which just means the anointed one. And that, that's the king that the Jews have been waiting for. So when you hear Jesus Christ, what we're saying is Jesus, this man, is the king that has been promised since Genesis 3 verse 15. This is the one that crushes the serpent's head. This is the one who sits on the throne of David. This is the suffering servant, king of Isaiah. This, that's what Christ means. So they say, are you the Christ? And it's, you'll notice it reads clunky in English. It reads clunky in every language. It says he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. It is emphatic. He's like, if you... If you miss anything, don't miss this. I am not the Christ. He really wants you to know that. The second question, are you Elijah? That's because based on Malachi chapter 4, the Jews were expecting Elijah to come back. Now, you might be thinking Jesus elsewhere does call John the Baptist Elijah. That's true. John seems to, one, either not view his ministry that way, or be specifically saying, I'm not Elijah himself. He might be like Elijah, but I am not the person Elijah. So he says, no, I'm not Elijah. I'm not Elijah reincarnate. And so finally they say, are you the prophet? By the prophet, they mean this promise from Deuteronomy where Moses said, a prophet like me, like Moses, but greater will rise up from the brothers and you owe your obedience to him. So they're looking for this prophet, these three figures to come onto the scene at the end of the age. And John says, I'm none of them. In fact, John masterfully changes the subject. They say, what do you say about yourself? And he says, I'm not the word. I'm just a voice. My voice is all about him. What I have to say isn't about me. It's about the Christ. That's his entire role. And to explain that, he quotes from Isaiah 40. A voice cries in the wilderness, 
Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. In other words, in the ancient times, if you got word that a great king was visiting your little hamlet, you had to go fix your roads. You don't want this grand carriage bumping along into the ditches and being you know, broken up by the rubble. And so you would go and sort of roll out the red carpet, smooth what's rough and make way so that the king can be revealed and come and visit you. That's what John's doing. The rest of the quote that he's alluding to says this, every valley shall be lifted up. And every mountain and hill be made low, the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The Jews from Jerusalem are saying to John, basically, what does your ministry reveal about yourself? And he says, no, my ministry is about revealing the glory of the Lord. The person who shows us what God is like. Uh, John the Baptist's whole ministry is kind of like the best man at a wedding. You've probably uh, heard that before. It's self-effacing, it's demure. Like, what best man would dare flirt for the bride's attention? Neither would John. So he says, look at the bridegroom. Look at him. Don't look at me. Behold, behold the glory of the Lord in this guy. This man, Jesus, reveals the glory. All right, now, with that in mind, extended introduction, let's move to point number one and just think about, just take a microscope to the words, the lamb. Behold the lamb. From as early as Genesis 22, God has been writing lambs into the story of Israel in lots of ways. And just as a technical note, the term lamb can refer to a young goat or a young sheep. It's not exclusive to sheep like we use it in English. So it's used kind of both ways. But in in many cases throughout the Old Testament, an innocent, spotless, perfect little lamb is offered up, is killed, so that the people of God can be free. So we've got to associate, like John did, in our minds, the idea of a lamb being offered and freedom. For instance, Exodus 12, a lamb is sacrificed so that the people could be free from judgment. We call it the Passover lamb. As an act of divine judgment, God is going to slay, in Exodus, the firstborn of every house. It's a severe judgment for severe rebellion. But if any Israelite were to kill a lamb and put its blood on their doorposts, death and judgment would pass by that household and they would be free. So the lamb dies, the people get free from judgment. Or think about Leviticus chapter 5. If you're not familiar, Leviticus 5 is about the place where we all lose steam in our Bible reading plans because it's just lists of like ancient sacrifices that don't seem to make a lot of sense to us and priestly practices and how do you do this at the tabernacle, etc. It can seem very tedious, but John the baptizer was a tremendous student of scripture and a good theologian, by which I mean he knew it was all about the Messiah. 
So John's reading Leviticus and he's not thinking boring. He's thinking, show me the Christ. Where do I find Christ in this? And in Leviticus chapter five, we find that the offering required by the Lord to take away guilt, as I'm sure you could guess, is a lamb. Interestingly, not just any guilt, chapter five begins by saying, hey, if you've been called to give testimony to something that you know is true and you don't, then you have to bring a lamb for your guilt. And here John is showing up on the scene bringing testimony when no one else can. And he shows us the lamb. So the lamb is how you get free from judgment. The lamb is how you get free from guilt. And it's probably for most of us beyond our modern kind of normal experience. Maybe for some hunters in the room, you have a better idea of what it would be like to see an animal die at your hands for a reason. I had a friend, an elder at a church in Washington that we went to, that they got goats. They were living in a very suburb little area, um, houses real close up, kind of East Nashville vibe. They got a couple goats in the backyard uh, for meat, and uh, he hung and slaughtered the goat in the front yard in front of his neighbors, and it didn't go very well. Um, They didn't have an HOA, but they would have gotten complaints if they did. But we don't understand because... We confessed our sins to Christ this morning in prayer. And we comfortably sat on padded chairs and said, Jesus, here's all of my sin and guilt. And he actually right then forgave us all of those things and we could just take the next step in freedom. But if this were 2,500 years ago, you'd have to go home to your flock, take something that costs you so much, something beautiful and something innocent, and you'd have to go slaughter it. Because of your sin, because of that thing you did wrong, there's a bloodletting. That's what they're trained to see when they think of a lamb. It's costly. When John the baptizer laid eyes on Jesus, he could have said, any number of things, right? Behold the king of the Jews, behold the lion of Judah. But he says, look at the lamb. Look at the lamb. This one will die. This one will free you. Behold the lamb. Beholding is an important part of faith. When the Israelites were wandering after the Exodus, after they were freed, after the Passover, they're wandering in the wilderness and they're just not, they're, they're stubborn. They're stubborn. I can relate. And so God sends them as discipline, poisonous serpents to tons of them, like a plague of snakes to bite and afflict his people. And they finally cried out like, God, help us. We deserve this, but you got to help. We're dying. And he says, okay, take a bronze snake and put it on a staff and erect it in the middle of the camp. And anyone who beholds it, anyone who looks at it, their pain will be taken away. Their disease will be removed. What can we look to? What do we have to behold to get free, to get healed? Only the Lamb of God can free us from judgment, death, and guilt, ultimately. 
That's the lamb. Uh, Number two is provided by God, or in our translations, it says of God. Behold the lamb of God. Really important. In the old covenant, we provide the lamb, right? I sin. I have to go take something costly to myself, and I provide it from my own hand. In the new covenant, God provides the lamb. Not for himself. He doesn't have sins to atone for, but for us. The lamb would come from God. That's what John 1, 1 through 18 has been all about. The word became flesh. He came from the father's side. And the lamb would be costly to him, to the father. The Bible says that Jesus is the lamb of God. He's provided by God. And what could be dearer to the father than his own son who was at his side, who was at his bosom, as older translations say, the one who's spent eternity in intimate, familial embrace with the father, with the one he loves, an eternal hug, because he loves his son, but he provided him. So remember back to Genesis 22, when Abraham had to take his beloved son up a mountain to sacrifice him. And he put him on the altar and he raised the knife and it didn't look good for Isaac, the son. But God provided a young ram caught in the thicket. God stayed his hand and said, don't harm him. I've sent you something to take his place. I've provided something for you. A young ram, a substitute, And John the baptizer sees Jesus of Nazareth walking by. And it's it's as if in his shadow he sees the ram in the thicket. This is the one that dies in our place. Or at the other end of the Hebrew Bible, in in the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 53 is the chapter we call the suffering servant passage. And it's all about God sending, providing this kingly servant who will be the man of sorrows. He will be afflicted and he will suffer for his people. Verses six and seven of Isaiah 53 read this way. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, the suffering servant, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. We sin, the Lord lays on him, the lamb, our guilt. He takes our punishment. And when it's talking about his silence, it's not the silence of oppression, it's the silence of resolve. The father sent, and the son said, I'll go. Send me. I'll do it. I'll do it willingly, and I will go all the way. The father loves you, and the son loves you. And together, God has provided a lamb. But think about that for a moment. Isaiah says, 
All we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us, we've turned to our own way. We don't desire after God. We don't want God. Our inclination is not naturally toward God. How could we, if that's true, provide anything for God? We don't even want to. The New Testament talks about that in categories of deadness. We can't be alive to God if we're dead. And we can't raise our hands and say, please make me undead, or alive, so that I can be alive to God because dead people don't get a say in it. You don't even want to. It's the whole point. So the atonement for sin and guilt, the freedom, it has to come from outside of you because you don't want to be free. God has to provide it. So we might think of John 3.16 like this. God loved the world in this way. At his own cost, he provided a lamb to take away the sins of the world he loves, even though it didn't love him. The eternal lamb dies so the world can have his eternal life. That's how God loved the world. He provided a lamb, the lamb of God. Third and and final point is who takes away the sin of the world. We've heard that so many times. They had never heard that. And I think it hit them like a hurricane. The Narnians in C.S. Lewis, if I can go back to that opening illustration, they were expecting certain things of Aslan, weren't they? And I'm sure that we could all have myriad funny stories of something you expected and something you got and how much it fell short. I think there's whole memes out there about ordering things from Amazon and finding they come in miniature version, right? When we were uh, furnishing our flat in Edinburgh, we went to Ikea, and this was uh, three, four years, I guess four, four or five years ago. We went to Ikea, and I had this expectation, this hope of getting this beautiful wingback chair that I really like, you know, feel scholarly, and getting it back into the flat and kind of writing my sermons there and doing my dissertation in that wing-back chair. I was very excited about it. It was kind of like the tufted back and everything. So we do our, we make our way through the, the showroom and we fill out the cards and buy the things and get home and I start assembling my chair. You undo the flat pack and your Allen wrenches and all that stuff, right? And <laughs> not until I had finished assembling the whole thing did I realize that I bought a miniature child's chair? And it was <laughs> it was just the teeny tiny chair version of the thing I was expecting. <laughs> Expectations are funny things. <laughs> yeah, did we keep it? I think we kept yeah, we kept it. <laughs> yeah. Expectations are funny things. And the Jews were expecting a king. They were expecting a Christ. The question is, were their expectations too low or too high? See, they were expecting someone to save Jews. They were expecting someone to save the Jews from military oppression, deliver us from the Romans, right? They were not expecting a king who would die like a lamb, rise up like a lion, and remove sin from the world. No one saw that coming. Their expectations 
were too low. They were expecting a teeny tiny chair, and they got a throne. What do you expect from Jesus? Do you expect him to help you deal with your guilt? He can do that. Overcome shame? Help you get over the dark shadows of your past? Do you expect him to help you clean up your life? Do better? Do you expect him to bring purpose and meaning to your life? Those things might all be true, but I still say we probably expect too little of him. Jesus is the lamb who died to take away the sin of the world. He frees you from not discomfort tomorrow, but judgment for eternity starting today. And because he died in your place, the substitute provided by God, what do you have to fear? What can harm you? What can man do to you? Jesus is the lamb who can certainly free you from guilt and shame, but it's not just making you feel better today. He can do that. He does do that. But it's also making you fit for the presence of God for eternity. Not just adequate so God can tolerate you in the room, but sun-like so he can draw you into his bosom forever. When you can't muster up the desire for God, he already desired you. And he did something about it. Jesus is God's provision for us in our absolute need. And he takes away the sin of the world. They expected the Jews to be saved from Rome. And he saved the Gentiles and the Jews and everything in between from all evil forever. So no matter what your background is, it doesn't matter what your ethnicity is, your color, your language, your culture, your subculture, your musical preferences. It doesn't matter the skeletons you have in your closet. It doesn't matter the dark secrets that you've never told another soul. It doesn't matter the things in your heart that you think, if they knew this about me, they wouldn't want to be with me. Jesus died to take away all of that. And one moment... You can be crushed under the weight of guilt and sin. You know the feeling. I think Psalm maybe 32 talks about it. Drying up like getting dehydrated in a desert. You're just wasting away. And the Lamb of God doesn't theoretically take away your sin. He takes it away. As far from the east is from the west. He removes it from your experience, life, and future. Praise God. You'll never be perfect in this world, but there will be the lamb waiting to forgive you every time you go back to him. The lamb of God, from whom we expect too little, is on his throne at the right hand of the Father, renewing all things and bringing his bright heavenly kingdom to invade this dark earth, and we expect too little of him. 
Now, I'm not inviting you to believe a set of ideas this morning. I am inviting you, whether it's your first time or not, to entrust yourself to him. Because God provided a lamb for you. Who are we to say no to God? Who are we to turn down such a kingly gift? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your provision. Thank you for your staggering love that we don't understand. Thank you for loving us when we are unlovable. Thank you for strengthening us. Thank you for filling our sails with the wind of your Holy Spirit when we need it most. Thank you for leaving us your peace and your joy that we can have even in the midst of sorrow and chaos. Continue to give good gifts to us now as we receive from your hand this bread and cup. In the name of Jesus, amen.